Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The captain follows a German army deserter, Willie Harold. Uh, after he finds an, an abandoned Nazi captain's uniform in the final weeks of World War II. Emboldened by the authority the uniform grants him, he amasses a band of stragglers who cede to his command despite suspicions of some of them. Citing direct orders from the Fuhrer himself, he soon takes command of a camp holding German soldiers accused of desertion and begins to dispense harsh justice. This is the premise behind the film called The Captain, and we are honored to have with us the director of the film, and that would be Robert Schwenke. Robert, welcome. to. Hi, film. how are you? Hi, how, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Where did you hear uh, about Willi Herhold? Um, I was looking actively for a story that would um, enable me to, uh, you know, shine a light on the dynamic structure of National Socialism. Um, we have a variety of national myths in Germany, one of them being that the Wehrmacht was clean, meaning they did not partake in genocide massacres. They were not ideologically driven. This myth came crashing down in the late 80s after archival material uh, uh, was being made available from Russia, and um, there was an exhibition of photographic evidence that uh, to the contrary of the myth. And there are other myths, such as uh, there were no German deserters uh, and so forth. And um, I, I was looking for uh, a story that would enable me to take another perspective on uh, World War II, uh, to tell another kind of story about Germany in, during, during the uh, Nazi time. Mm -hmm. And so... When I came across this story, I looked at a variety of stories, actually, and this uh, turned out to be the one that best suited what I was looking for, uh, because it offered me not just sort of a myopic look um, an and perspective, so to speak, of the soldiers in the field, but all the different layers of the machine of the system uh, could be looked at all the way up to the generals in a, in a scene, in a courtroom scene later in the film. The Justice Department is part of it. The various branches of the military is part of it. The Army is part of it. Um, and I thought uh, it, would, it would lend itself to, uh, to a kind of a system analysis. And I found the last remaining file of the court proceedings, the court transcripts, in, a, in an archive in northern uh, Germany, <clears throat> in the Emsland, which is where he was tried, by a British military court and uh, and sentenced to death, and um, that's really what the film is based on, mm, down to some verbatim quotes in the court proceedings. For example, you know, a lot of people felt, you know, I must have made that up, but uh, I don't want to you know, yeah. ruin anything for anyone. But there 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 is a scene where he does not get sentenced by uh, a German court, and the, the reasoning for not sentencing him is, uh, as I said, verbatim out of the court transcripts of that court proceeding. That's pretty amazing, that scene, especially after all that we've seen that preceded it. It's, uh, it's, mm. it's unfathomable that uh, 
This, and I want to make a broader point before we sort of dive into the details of the film. And and as much as it is certainly about World War II, this takes place in the last couple of weeks uh, before the end of World War, before the official end of World War II in 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 Europe. And it's it's hard. It's easy to imagine just based on that time frame the level of chaos that must have been in play, uh, and the opportunity that someone like Billy uh, could have taken advantage of. But I also do think that it's important to point out, in my opinion, that it the film speaks to a, a broader perspective than just his story about people's willingness yeah. to, 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 under certain hard-to-understand circumstances, at least for most people until they're in them, to understand how this could have taken place. Yeah, I mean, it is specifically about the last two weeks uh, of World War II in 1945, April of 1945. But it is, uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, about also human nature, the fact that we have a, a propensity to do injustice and cruelty to one another. We, I don't know where it comes from, uh, but we have it. And I think the membrane between chaos and civilization is, is paper thin. It's much thinner than we, we would like to imagine. And so this is, um, when I started working on it 12 years ago, people didn't really see the immediate, immediate relevance of the story. And I kept, I maintained that it's really a story about human nature, and they said, okay, fine, but really, you have to do that to yourself and to us. And in the last four years, unfortunately, the film really has gained in relevance, again, because we're, we're, we're faced with a new, new set of strongmen, Really, who are who are uh, paying lip service to democratic forms, but of course they're um, they're disregarding democratic norms, and yeah. form without norm is not really possible. And uh, there's a there's uh, there's a new harsh rhetoric, chauvinistic rhetoric, xenophobic rhetoric, etc. And that's also what the film is about: how uh, rhetoric always precedes action, and. Uh, the things that have to <clears throat> start happening to, um, you know, to uh, to allow for these hideous, heinous things to happen, um, and I, I I think, you know, my the biggest surprise in my lifetime has been, you know, we went through the dark ages and we went through the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, and I would have never imagined that anybody would ever want to go back, um, and uh, and uh, or that nationalistic fervor would be uh, a, a personality-building trait. I just never thought that would would happen again. I thought we had left that behind. But we haven't, and uh, we're seeing it now again all over the world. We are. And we're, it's, uh, yeah. it's very frightening to me. It is. And I, think it's, it's a, it, it, and I think it's important to say, okay, look, this sort of rhetoric, this sort of talk, this sort of linking of nationalist uh, chauvinistic forces um, is uh, can can lead to very very bad things indeed. Yeah, and I think we have to you know call those things out. Right. I, I think there's a visual metaphor that works very well just in the poster for the captain. It's a the poster I'm looking at has a troop of of soldiers who were picked up along the way by Philly Herold. And they're t- they're pulling his vehicle up a hill, up a slight inc- incline, with him standing in the in the car, 
to the to the benefit of no one but himself. And uh, I think it's such a powerful it's a powerful image, and it speaks to what what I'm hearing more. I agree with you. I'm hearing more and more about you know uh, a return uh, a rejection of modernity as something uh, un unholy. And those are really almost exactly how people are framing. People are framing it, and you see in Poland and Hungary and around Europe and all around the world, Philippines and others, and other closer places than that to our shores and on our shores. So you're absolutely right. This film speaks in so many ways, on so many different levels, to why we have to constantly be vigilant about this kind of a kind of a reactionary mindset. Yeah, and, and d- democracy is not a privilege. It's a privilege. It's not a right. Right. So, yeah. so um, I, we we have to we have to fight for it, and you know this is this is the story of a of a man who was um, a faker. He's a con man. He's a liar. When he opens his mouth, he lies. Right. And to me, one of the most interesting facets of the film is that not everybody believes him. Right. Some people know for sure that he's a fake, and they still go along because they benefit from it. And it's that kind of. Um, uh, dynamic too that 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 I see that nobody seems to be saying no, and the captain also is a, is a story about nobody saying no. Right. Nobody really gets in his path in a meaningful way because they all benefit from it. Yeah. And yes. uh, several several people in the film know for sure. Some people suspect it, but as long as uh, it's a give and take between between Harold and the people around him. It's a it's a system that that works that functions that is self sustaining, right? Because everybody's only thinking about themselves and they're only thinking in short term, um, in in in, in, in short term periods. Captain Younger was the one person I couldn't make up my mind about in the film, and you don't have to tell me one way or the other, but he was the one who I yeah. thought would for sure. But I mean, it's set up so that it looks like at some point in the film, and without giving much away here, He's, but uh, we. We kind of we we played a little bit coy with that character. That's what I thought. It's not quite clear, right? Um, intentionally, there are moments where you think, "Oh, he must for sure know," and there are other moments where you think, "Oh, this guy's just too drunk to know anything." And then, of course, he shows up in the court proceedings later on. But that too could just be self-serving. You're you're, you're not no you're not sure with that character, um, but you're sure with certain others. And and, and as, in a manner of speaking, I'm going to extrapolate a little bit. In a manner of speaking, he should have known, and that's sort of a lot of these characters you're talking or describing. Who who who? Sh- if they didn't know, they should know. And yeah, it's With Alexander just... Feeling, the the actor of, of who played the uh, Junker. We talked a lot about how it would ultimately not matter to this character whether this guy was real or not. Yeah, because what he needed done could get done as long as other people believed. That uh, Harold was a was was a real captain. Yeah. So, so there was a certain, uh, you know, uh, nihilism in this character where he where he felt nothing really, you know, you can do anything you want as long as you get what you need. And ultimately, in some ways, that's the most dangerous of people. Mm-hmm. The a nihilist, and and uh, yeah, I, I I cannot emphasize enough for our listeners how the acting in this film is so so good, so superb. Everyone in it is just outstanding. Uh, 
But I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the lead actor here, uh, Max Hubucker. He is he is remarkable because, and I'll tell you for a lot of a couple of quick reasons. One for me, it was his 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 nuances in this, in this performance are just outstanding. There are so many. There's a number of key scenes where he you you think he's he's going to be found out. There's going to be a moment when he's challenged enough, and then he does this kind of. He regroups. You can see almost the the gears spinning in his head as he regroups and goes right back at him in a way that just completely steamrolls so many of the, so many of the people challenging him. And the way he was able to do that, and the way you were able to shoot him in the in those scenes, I just fell in love with the way that you did that. Thank you. I- <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the difficulty for for Max was. Of course, we intentionally avoided uh, to explain the character in psychological terms or possibly even clinical terms. Right. All the other characters in the film are very clearly designed, uh, defined and designed um, in terms of uh, what makes them tick uh, and where they find themselves on the spectrum of the perpetrators. But with Vili Herald, I, I realized that um, explaining why this man does what he does um, would take away the effort that is now required by the audience to find their own answers yeah. as to why this man is doing what he does. And ultimately, that, of course, is is the ideal audience for the film, someone who, who asks uh, questions, who finds his or her own answers, who also asks themselves, what would I have done? Yeah. So I think that defining him any more than we did um, would have distanced this character from the audience uh, in a way that would have been, in my opinion, counterproductive. Mm. So, so we we refuse to explain him psychologically, and of course that is a, a major tool in any actor's toolbox. And and we basically <laughs> took it took it away from <laughs> Max. So we really needed to define every moment in every scene with him. What are his options? What is he thinking? Why is he thinking this? Why is he making this choice and not another choice? What are the uh, upsides, what are the downsides, and and he he really had uh, you know effectively a text that unspooled in his mind yes. where he went through all the various options, uh, no matter how he ended up choosing, no matter what action he took, he always tried to find a different solution and weighted against the one he was going to do. Yeah. Exactly, and, and that's I think what you're seeing that he's he's actually it's it's not it's not acting or it's or it's really great acting rather where he he's really mulling these things over and he's really uh, feeling the weight and the pressure of the moment to uh, to react in the proper and right way and the best way that he can that he can come up with right well and, and ultimately he he's driven by his desire to survive exactly I was gonna say and and the closest in my mind the closest we get to kind of a, a any sort of backstory or sense of him as a person is in the opening sequence where he's being chased and when he finds shelter when he finds a place to hide in this opening part, you, he shot. He looks feral on, in that situation. You, you, he's covered in mud, and you see, and he has this can again a feral look about a man who is completely at the end of everything that he can do, and he's left with just the r- most raw human um, uh, emotion or 
or he uh, he's run out of options. And through the rest of the film, we see him, as you say, mulling over. And he's brilliant at picking the option that is in some ways least expected and at the same time really effective. Yeah. It's really well yeah, done. Yeah, he manages to not just eat well uh, and have people do as he says, but he also manages to stay away from the front line, which of course is his major goal. He doesn't. He knows if he goes back to the front, he will most likely be shot, and he wants to sit it out. And so he—that's one of the reasons why he takes the job in the camp. Yeah. Because he knows, uh, you know, as soon as the front comes close, they will move away and they will be done with their job because nothing in that camp can be left for whoever approaches from the front line. Just a brilliant, brilliant film, brilliant production. Um, the, the decision to shoot this in black and white, you're, is it Florian Bauhaus that you uh, yes, work with? Mm-hmm. Uh, on this, uh, it's just a re- great look. Oh, wait, look, before I go any further, I'm sorry, Robert. I want to intro- reintroduce you to the audience. I don't think I have. Uh, we're speaking with the director of the film, The Captain. That would be Robert Schwenke. And um, the film is opened here in Los Angeles and will continue to roll out uh, across the country. But please search out this film. It is just a remarkable film. And I, I strongly recommend that you go see it, check it out. Um, going back to the cinematographer Florian Malhaus, um, working with him and this black and the idea of black and white. What was it went into that decision? Uh, Twenty years ago, about I read an anecdote about Martin Scorsese shooting color test footage for Raging Bull, and uh, this was coverage he shot ringside with boxers, you know, pounding pounding away at each other and blood squirting. And um, he was, and I have no way to verify this, this I've only read it, but it, make, it truly is the reason why we shot in black and white. And he, he meant to shoot it in color, and Michael Powell, a friend of his, late Michael Powell, yeah. who, uh, who is really one of the great, great masters of color in cinema, somebody who, who really thought a great deal about uh, how to use color, how to employ color, and uh, this lover of color looked at these tests and said, you, you cannot, absolutely cannot shoot this film in color because uh, um, people are not going to get past the blood. You have to shoot it in black and white. Otherwise, people will think you've made a violent film and not a film about a violent man, which, of course, is, is, is the distinction that, uh, that you need to have, to have happen for a movie like that. And, um, and it just stuck with me because I thought it was such a brilliant analysis uh, and it was such astute thinking on, on Michael Powell's part in terms of how the audience perceives uh, certain things on screen, violence. And, of course, you know, this is also the man who's made Peeping Tom. Right. So he, he, has, he has thought deeply about, uh, about the screen and violence and, and, uh, and the interrelationship. You've mentioned some wonderful. There, black and white is a just an incredible cinematic tool. I think Paper Moon is one of my all-time favorite films, and it is such a brilliant last picture bl- show too. Yeah, and last picture show, brilliant black and white, just absolutely stunning. Um, well, no, and I now that I've shot black and white, I I I would I would love to only shoot in black and white. I think <laughs> it's absolutely terrific. It's a, it it breaks my heart that. Um, that uh, it's really not on the table in Hollywood anymore for a filmmaker. Is that is that you know, is that right? They're they just I mean you're you're going to get shot down on something like that, huh? Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, you have directed big budget 
Hollywood productions like Red and the Time Traveler's Wife and other and Flight Plan and others. Is this a film, this is the kind of project that you feel that energize you? Is it something that you, obviously, 12 years in the making, obviously you cared uh, tremendously about the story and telling the story. Um, do you take something away from, from this into um, the other film projects moving forward? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's of course, invigorating to, uh, to test yourself to, to the limit. I mean, this film really was a high-wire act without a net. It could have it could have gone wrong in, in in a lot of ways. We were breaking conventions. Um, we were we were sort of straying from the beaten path. And uh, I felt I knew how to make the film. Otherwise, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have attempted it. You know, I'm not I'm not into playing Russian roulette. <laughs> but still, you never know what happens. And uh, and this kind of working without a net and really going out on a limb is incredibly invigorating and trying out new things because I think that the, the beating heart of cinema is of course narrative innovation and trying things that that haven't been done before um, I'm not talking about technological innovation because we're, we're, we're starting to mix those two up and they're really not the same um, in fact I think technology is progressive and our, our, our narrative capabilities seem to regress yeah. at the same time yeah. so so this sort of invigoration, of course, is, is also going to flow into the mainstream films. That's, you know, a career that I admire a great deal is Stephen Soderbergh's career. He does big pictures, he does studio movies, he does independent films, and then he does these really, really small films. And I really feel that he gets to experiment and test himself and test new things for himself that he then can, you know, as colors on his palette, use for his next project. And uh, and, I, and everything you do informs what follows, and uh, and I feel like I've 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 learned a great deal making this film simply because I was able to stay away from um, yeah certain calcified calcified uh, um, rules about how you know you need to tell a story like this how how your character needs to have a certain arc how. Um, you know how you have to verbalize morality, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know the movie really comes without a moral manual, and uh, that's why it has such a heightened tone. That's another thing. The tone was, of course, a high wire act because um, we didn't want to do caricature, we didn't want to do satire, but we wanted to do farce. Right. And uh, it was it was hard on the actors too oh, to, uh, to really nail that tonality. I can imagine. You're right. I hadn't thought about that, but absolutely to get this. It's farce. It's not, I've heard it described as a black comedy. I, I don't know if that is an apt description in my mind, but it's definitely farce and um, brilliant. And, and it's absurdist, absurdist and, and yeah. all of those things. Yeah. Well, I, one last question for you before I let you go. Um, the film reception in, in Germany, has it played in Germany? I guess is the first question. It has played in Germany. It opened in March. It was uh, uh, very much noticed and uh, kind of greeted with, with quite a bit of relief because it broke so many taboos that still exist or existed, I should say, in, uh, in, um, in the way German cinema deals with our national socialist past. And, uh, you know, a film, this film does not, had, had not existed yet in, in German cinema. And so, so people were, were, were happy that this sort of film was possible and that somebody 
made it that people who didn't like it, um, which were fewer, uh, didn't like it for the same reason that the other people liked it, because they felt, well, why break these taboos? Why tell a story from the point of view of the perpetrator? You know, why not uh, verbalize, you know, the, the, the moral summary at the end of the story and, and all of those things? Mm-hmm. We were nominated for Best Picture, for example, um, for the equivalent of the Academy Awards in Germany. Uh, we had five nominations altogether. Five? Yeah, I believe five. And we've, um, you know, we've... Uh, we had the actors received uh, some uh, some nominations and upcoming nominations for Ben Persia, mm-hmm. who plays the Amen, um, for Best Actor, which is, uh, just to be nominated for that is a, is a fairly big deal. Florian got the Camera Award oh, uh, in Germany, so it's it's been it's been seen and it's been rewarded and it's um, you know and, and hopefully it'll break it'll break some new ground in terms of how we. Um, can tell stories about ourselves and about human nature and about our past. Well, I will uh, I will chime in with it is a brilliant film and and from from my heart it is a brilliant film. It's just so so accomplished and so wonderfully told. And uh, my congratulations to you, Robert Schwenke, for your work here. And thank I you very much. I very much look forward to uh, to your work in the future. And uh, thank you so much for being here on Film School. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.